Carl McCoon was a likable Texan. I read a little bit of his story. He loved the outdoors. In the late 70s, he moved to Alaska, took a trucking job with the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, made good money, a few friends, took up photography, and planned to make an expedition into the wilds of Alaska that still to this day bewilders everyone who hears his story. At the age of 35, he embarked on a five-month photography expedition. He'd spent a year planning every single detail. He had solicited advice. He had used the year to purchase supplies. And then in the spring of 1981, he hired a bush pilot to drop him at a remote lake 70 miles northeast of Fort Yukon. He had along with him two rifles, a shotgun, 1,400 pounds of provisions, and 500 rolls of film. He arrived, he set up his camp there in the isolation of the wild, surrounded by nothing but gorgeous nature, where he'd spend five months of hiking and hunting and fishing and photographing the, the splendor of his surroundings. He was blissfully unaware of one overlooked detail that would cost him his life. He had made no arrangement with anyone to be picked up. It didn't dawn on him until August. His only hope was that a friend would remember how long he had expected to stay and notice his absence. Every day he searched for food and he, he scanned the skies for rescue and none came. By the end of September, the lake was frozen, the snow began piling up, hiking out was now impossible, his supplies nearly gone as well as his ammunition. The details of his Final days are known to us because of a more than 100-page diary found near his body where he detailed those last months of freezing cold and starvation. He was found by authorities nearly a year after he had first set up camp and begun his expedition. In his diary is perhaps the greatest and most tragic understatement of his life as he wrote, and I quote, I should have used more foresight about arranging my departure. He had planned every detail of his expedition. He had not planned any details for his exit. He planned everything for his living. He planned nothing for his leaving. Frankly, I, as I read that story just a few weeks ago, couldn't help but believe that is the story of most human hearts on the planet today. They think only of living and nothing about leaving. Yet nearly two people will die on this planet every second, more than 6,000 an hour. 155,000 people die every day, around 57 million a year. I find it wonderful that the grace 
of God has made for us every provision, not only for living in this wild world, but in leaving this world. In fact, the only way you're ever going to live in this world, heading in the right direction, the only way you're going to leave this world, heading for the right destination, happens to be the grace of God. We are saved by grace. We live by grace. We are taught by grace. We die in grace and go to heaven on the promise of God's grace for those who believe the gospel of grace. And in Titus chapter 2, where I invite your attention, the Apostle Paul has been delivering what I've called a family talk. He comes to the end of this address speaking to every member of the family. He sort of pulls the cart over on the side of the road and says, look, I want to summarize everything by just telling you it's all about the grace of God. Not only in living and dying, living here and leaving here. It's the grace of God, the graciousness of God. Notice verse 11 where we left off. For the grace of God has appeared. That little word for, that is everything I've been talking about to you is directly connected back to and empowered then by and encouraged by the grace of God. As an older man, you can't pull off what I've challenged you to do without the grace of God. As an older woman, you can't even begin without the grace of God. A younger wife, mother, younger man, a servant of the household, you can't do what I've challenged you to do. You can't live and you're not ready to leave without the grace of God. And would you notice, he says, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. In other words, this is your way out of here. This is your exit strategy, the grace of God, as we'll see in a moment. What have you done then with the gracious offer of salvation from God? Have you made any plans relative to being picked up? Now, I want you to notice that Paul is not saying that all men are saved. Don't misunderstand him. He's not preaching universalism here. This connective conjunction that begins the sentence, this very long sentence, by the way, that stretches from verse 11 all the way through verse 14, one of those classic sentences by Paul, is connecting it back to the context of the previous verses, where Paul has addressed different categories of people. You could understand Paul to be saying here in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all kinds of people, whether you're a man or a woman. Young or old, bond or free, toss in rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, married or single or widowed, a parent or parentless, childless citizen or foreigner. Anybody can be a member of the family of God. And if you're a member, you got that membership card solely by believing in the gospel of the grace of God. It's appeared. It is your way out. But when you got saved, Grace was not finished with you. Far from it. You're going to now grow in grace, Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.18. That is, you're going to grow up in the gracious character of your living Lord. So Paul effectively now in this sentence says, I'm going to keep the cart parked over here on the side of the road for just a few minutes. 
and explain to every member of the family how grace impacts every aspect of living and leaving. That's what he does in verses 11 to 14. And what I want to do is outline what Paul has to say by giving you three different words or expressions to learn how to say. Three expressions determined by, governed by, the grace of God. In fact, if you want to measure, before we dive in, so don't read ahead, if you want to measure, if you're growing in grace, just ask yourself the question, you'll be able to ask at the end of the study, perhaps better, how often am I saying one of these three things? And the first word to learn how to say by the grace of God in your life is the little word no. In O. This has to do with the kind of lifestyle you're in the process of rejecting on a daily basis. Look at verse 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now, notice what grace does next instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. See, Paul sort of personifies grace so that you actually think of a person. And, and, and grace shows up and begins to teach us. And she begins to teach us how to say no. Well, I thought grace was all about how to say yes. Well, it is. But it's interesting that first you're taught how to say no. In fact, you're instructed. Did you notice that word? It has wonderful implications. Paul could have in this, by the way, he could have chosen the word didasco, a Greek word that refers to a formal setting of teaching, kind of like today. I'm teaching, you're listening. I'm behind a desk, which even kind of helps present more of the image of a professor and and a class. And this kind of teaching works only if you show up. If you miss the lecture or the sermon or the lesson, tough. You, you, You missed it. Paul doesn't use that word. He uses the word paiduo, which gives us our word pedagogy, pedagogue. It refers more to teaching a toddler teaching a young child, typically by a parent. This kind of teaching is informal, and it takes place, in fact, throughout the day. Whenever teaching moments arise, you teach that little child. So what he means here, then, even in the choice of that verb, is that the grace of God is a teacher that teaches us where and wherever we are. It daily teaches us whenever teaching moments arise, which means the grace of God condescends to teach us at our own personal speed. In fact, there's the nuance and the idea that that grace will reinforce truth according to our own personal needs and, and, and the style of learning where we learn best. Grace is the perfect tutor. If she had taught me science and math, I'd be a pilot. I wouldn't be in the ministry today, and I would miss all of you terribly. If you missed a lesson or two yesterday, Grace is going to show up today. She's ready to teach. 
if he didn't quite get the lesson, which none of us ever really master, since the subject of our lesson is the character and the nature of God, grace is going to show up again and again and again and lead us through the lessons all over again. In fact, for the rest of our lives, we will have the companionship of this teacher, this tutor called grace. And grace is going to tutor us in how to say three things. The first expression is that little word, no. Go back to verse 12 again and look. Instructing us to deny. That word deny means to say no. It means to refuse. You could also translate it to renounce, to disown. Paul is effectively saying the the kind of life you were living, you are now disowning. You are renouncing. You're saying no to it. A young couple, in fact, that joined in the first service told me recently they had literally decided to renounce everything they could think of that might stand in the way of their commitment and growth. Anything and everything. Anything questionable. Anything doubtful. They poured down the sink all their alcoholic beverages. They threw away most of their music collection, books and magazines, began spending their money differently. They got up in the morning as a young couple deciding to view life with a different shift entirely. They effectively said, we're finished with anything that keeps us on the fence. We're going to start saying no to anything that sounds like, looks like, seems like our past life. Paul expands the same idea to the Ephesians. He says, don't walk any longer as the unbelievers walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the hardness of their heart. They, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity, you didn't learn Christ in this way. In other words, grace isn't tutoring you to live like that. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit and 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 you're renewed in the spirit of your mind as you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has created us in righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. All that to say, learning to walk in Christ, tutored by grace, means that you will, first of all, be taught how to say and to what to say no to. The person who says, hey, I'm under grace, And that means I can say yes to everything isn't being tutored by grace. Because grace teaches you in this text how to say no, how to deny the old life. Growing up in Christ, one author wrote, is impossible without the discipline of refusal. And isn't that just like growing up as a human being? I mean, if you have children... You know you're spending so much time with your toddlers as you're literally raising them. In fact, the one word you say more than anything is no. You don't go around the house saying to them, yes, 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 yes. It's no, 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 right? I mean, that's the word that is the number one word in your vocabulary. Your little angel toddles over to the cabinet there or the coffee table and and reaches out his, his, his pudgy little hand to grab it and you say... No, no. And he freezes. Then he looks over at you (laughs) without blinking an eye, stares you directly in the eye, and grabs it. (laughs) 
he has decided you're not as tough as you look. It's time he can take you on. That's what he thinks of your no-no. No wonder Mark Twain said, when a child reaches two, put him in a barrel and feed him through a knot hole. He went on to say, and then when he turns 13, plug up the hole. I'm not recommending that, but he must have had some kids. Part of the challenge of growing up is responding to the word no. Without that word as a kid, it's going to be difficult to survive. I mean, what's wrong with playing in the street? What's wrong with eating candy you know, for supper? Well, what's wrong with playing out in the rain when it's lightning? I mean, that's a blast as a kid. Somebody comes along and says no. The truth is we need grace to teach us what to say no to because our, our parents aren't going to be around forever, especially as it deals now with, with mature spiritual things, physical things, emotional things, financial things. Our peers aren't going to teach us. <laughs> the world system isn't going to teach us. The world system is designed to erase every no and replace it with now. What are you waiting for? Now. Don't withhold anything. Don't say no. Say now. Francis Schaeffer, a Christian philosopher now with the Lord and author, wrote some 40 years ago. He wrote this, and I quote, We are surrounded by a world that says no to nothing. We have a society that holds itself back from nothing. Any concept of the word no is avoided as much as possible. Absolutes and ethical principles must give in to selfish pursuits. Of course, this environment fits exactly into our natural disposition because since the fall of man, we do not want to deny ourselves either. No wonder we need grace to show up regularly and teach us, instruct us, tutor us in how to say no. Grace will teach us to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires. What are they? Well, he didn't give us a list, which I think is wonderful, because now we can generalize this definition. It would simply be anything. A, a disciple of Christ who wants to grow, anything you might do or say or pursue or, or think or participate in where you would be embarrassed if Jesus showed up. And, and you heard the implicit from him, no, no. This is, this is how you leave your old life. It's a, it's a daily leaving, moment by moment sometimes. But there's more. Not only does grace teach you how to leave your past life, it teaches you how to live your present life. Notice what he writes next in verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, don't stop there, but to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present world. You don't just stop with no. You know, how, you, you're growing Christian? Yeah. How, how, how do you know? That? Well, I'm not doing this, that, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that. Don't stop there. Grace is going to teach you how to say yes and what to say yes to. In fact, the tenses of this verb 
to live, to live sensibly, indicate that it takes place at the same time as your denials. This is a wonderful truth and very encouraging to every disciple that wants to grow up in Christ. In other words, you're saying no to ungodliness and no to worldly desires, while at the same time you are saying yes to living sensibly and righteously and godly. See, part of the misconception, especially if you're new in the faith, that the enemy's going to bring to your mind is that you're going you're to become discouraged because you, you have this belief, this, this misconception that, that you'll eventually arrive at some point where you will never have to say no again. Life will be an easy yes. I mean, surely a mature-wise, growing Christian gets to the point where he never has to bother saying no. I mean, those temptations are finally going to give up and say, well, leave that guy alone. doesn't work. And not according to Paul, not according to the rest of the Bible. In fact, even Paul is a maturing believer, transparently admitted his struggle with doing the things he didn't want to do and not doing the things he wanted to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Romans 7. You are never beyond temptation. You will never outgrow the need to say, no, on a daily basis. And at the same time, you're never beyond the need to say yes to affirm these things. We don't just put off the old man. We put on the new man, Ephesians 3. And Paul tells us that grace is going to clothe us correctly. Take that off and put this on. Now, Paul tells us that grace is going to teach us to say yes to three different attributes. The first one here in verse 12 is sensibility. This word has shown up several times, and I've tried to mark it each time in your minds. It it occurred in chapter 1 as a qualification for an elder. He needs to be known as sensible. It is also a challenge for older men to be sensible, chapter 2, verse 2. It's part of, of the growing development of a young wife and mother. She's also told to be sensible in verse 5 of chapter 2, and also in the lives of young men, they're told to be sensible in verse 6. Now Paul broadens the application, as I said he would, to the entire church family so that no one is exempt from saying yes to this characteristic. The word means, if you remember, to live with discretion, to think and act with self-control. It's a word that refers to somebody, in fact, it's translated often, especially in the King James Version, to be of sound mind. That is, he's a believer who doesn't allow his mind to be controlled or distracted by either circumstances or culture, and that is then the daily battle. He daily makes up his mind to follow the truth. Daily. Now, Paul adds another course in the curriculum of grace. Not only is the believer to live sensibly, but righteously. Paul, by the way, only uses this word in this form two other times in the New Testament. One, to defend his own actions as being upright. One of the rare times he defends himself, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 10. And the other time, to describe the believer's obligation to stop sinning and live rightly. 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Living righteously means you live rightly. You live with rightness. 
You live then by the divine standard of what is right, and it must be a divine standard outside of yourselves, because if it isn't, we're going to think whatever we're doing is right. Let me get on a little hobby horse for a moment. More and more you are hearing people talk about their values. You know, they have family values. Uh, we have personal values. The values that made our country great. People who live according to their set of values. I'm a man or a woman of, of values. That word values, dear flock, means absolutely nothing. It can be defined any way a person wants to define it. The word values is entirely subjective. It's whatever you happen to believe in. Whatever you happen to think is something valuable. In the eyes of God, it might not be valuable at all, but you think it is, and so you're a person of values, and that's the word today. It's used for everything from American-made merchandise to organic food. Whatever you value is based on what you believe, you feel, you want to do, and they are as varied as the wind. Values have replaced. Here's the word that's, that's disappeared. Values has replaced the word virtues. It's one thing to say I'm a man of value. It's another thing to say I'm a man of virtue. World of difference. Why? Because of the way Webster defined it. Sometime back, himself, for our Western world, he defined virtue as a conformity to a standard of right. No wonder that word has to go bye-bye. You're telling me there's an external standard of right? Objective standards of rightness or righteousness? There's something bad and there's something good, something wrong and something right? See, our relativistic culture doesn't want to conform to any ethical or moral or even spiritual standards of rightness. You can't go out there on the street and tell somebody who's following, you know, some guy who worships trees, you're wrong. You can't tell them they're wrong and you're right. Who do you think you are? See, values by definition do not conform to any external standard. But here's what's happening. The values created by people who stand up and say they, are, they hold to values are perceived as people of virtue. A man says, I firmly hold to these values, and people think, oh, he's a man of virtue. Not necessarily. He's simply holding to whatever his own standard is of what he considers valuable, and it may not be virtuous at all. William Sankster, a well-known pastor in England who was serving at the time the Titanic sank, told in one of his sermons a story that I read of a wealthy woman who'd already found her place in one of the lifeboats. She was about to be lowered along with others into the North Atlantic, and she suddenly thought of something that she had forgotten and, and begged to go back and get. She was frantic. They allowed her to go and get out and go, and, and they gave her just a minute or two, and she ran across that listing deck 
to her stateroom. There above her bed was a shelf, and on that shelf was a box of her diamond jewels. And she ran over to it, pushed the box off the shelf and onto the floor, and reached behind it where there were oranges. She grabbed the oranges and ran back to the lifeboat. What happened to her values? William Sangster wrote this. The danger of death had boarded the Titanic. One blast of its awful breath had transformed all values. Priceless things had become worthless. Worthless things. Priceless. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a day coming when the world will stand before God and discover that according to his standard of rightness, many of their values were not virtues at all. And Paul says, now you've left the world system, their perspective. Now that you're a believer, the grace of God is going to teach you through the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, what is right. And you're going to say yes to that. He has a third word in that list, you'll notice. He has the word godly. This is the opposite of ungodly. Ungodliness, which the believers to deny. The word simply defined is, 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 is an appropriate attitude toward God and the things of God, whatever they may be. It is God-likeness in perspective and spirit. And so already you know, and you should be encouraged by the fact that grace is going to show up every day to teach you this, because none of us will ever master any of these three things. We'll never be able to put on a shelf godly and say, I got that one nailed. I'm working on honesty, but I got godly. Working on purity, but I got godly. No, no, no. All of this is a continual process of the curriculum of grace. We never master it until we are in the presence of Christ who completes his work in our glorification one day. He adds at the end of verse 12, we're to live this way in the present age. I like that phrase. We live in this present age. We don't live like it. We don't live for it. We live in it. That's how we're taught to live. So grace teaches you how to leave your past life. It teaches you how to live your present life. But it also teaches you how to look for your future life. Look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Isn't that a fantastic text? I wanted to preach an entire sermon just on that one verse alone and couldn't because we're, this is the last Sunday. Paul is talking about God the Father and God the Son, some would say. He's talking about God, the Father, and Jesus Christ. Oh, no. This verse, by the way, happens to be one of the strongest statements on the deity of Jesus Christ in all of the New Testament. He's not talking about God and somebody else, the second person, or, or, or Jesus. Could be a man, for all other cults believe. There is a single definite article in this Greek title. You're going to forget that. Just remember it this way. In other words, the great God is also the Savior who is Christ Jesus. That's what he's saying. 
You could reverse the reading in your English New Testament to sort of capture that idea. Jesus Christ is the Savior who is our great God. The pronouns in the next verse are singular, pointing back to Jesus Christ. Furthermore, and I want to throw a couple other things at you, in the Old Testament, God is often referred to as great. In the New Testament, God the Son alone is referred to as great. It's a unique title given just to him. Just as importantly, whenever the New Testament speaks of God appearing, epiphanio, epiphany, light dawning, whenever it talks about God appearing, it's always a reference to God the Son, Jesus Christ, which makes perfect sense given the fact that we're told that Jesus is the embodiment of deity. He is the physical manifestation of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. Jesus Christ who is our Savior and our great God, is going to do what? Paul says, he is going to appear. We're looking for him even now. This is a reference in this context to the church in any age looking for the rapturing away of that church by the sudden appearance of Christ. The Thessalonian believers were commended for waiting for God's Son who was coming from heaven. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Paul told the Thessalonians that they further would be, would be delivered from the wrath to come. Introduced in Revelation 3.10 is the wrath, which we know is the tribulation. Paul was expecting, as he wrote to the Thessalonians, to be alive when Christ came to catch the church away. Rapturo in the Latin text from which we get our word rapture. And join him in the air. Chapter 4, verse 17 after which he institutes a period of wrath on the earth as he establishes Israel to receive the Messiah, and he will with us return. Paul is telling us here in Titus to look for that time when Christ will come for his church. After the tribulation, he comes with his church. How did the church get there with him? He's already come for him, for the church. We don't have time to review all the eschatological events of Revelation. We covered that a few years ago. 50 sermons or so, you thought it'd never end. Well, it ended. We don't have time to go back and rehearse it. Here's the point, though, for now. Grace is teaching us to look up. She's constantly saying, look up, look up, get ready, get ready. Are you ready? Be ready. Grace is teaching us to look forward to the coming of Christ, which may be today. So that's the third expression. She's effectively teaching us how to say, no, yes. Maybe today. Maybe today. One person's excited about that. That's great. Maybe today our great God, who is our Savior, who happens to be the embodiment of deity, Jesus Christ, is going to come and rapture us away. There, ladies and gentlemen, is your exit strategy. I'd love to be alive when that happens. Can I ask you if you've planned your way out of here? Most people will say, I'm set for life. I got my, 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 my 401, whatever, my portfolio, insurance, money in the bank, retirement, all the provisions I need. So what? You're going to die. Do you have a way out? 
The way out happens to be the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him, John 14, 6. Paul says, while we're on the subject of our great God and Savior, let me tell you what he's done for those who've placed their faith in him alone, who wait for him. Very quickly, first verse 14 informs us he gave himself for us to redeem us. He redeemed us. Every slave would immediately understand this context. This is coming out of the culture of the slave market. And the slave market is to this day around the world. A buyer will approach the, 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 the auction block upon which a slave stood where buyers are, are, are bartering. He'll meet the price that tops the others. He will remove that slave's chains and that slave belongs to him. Jesus Christ buys us out of slavery to sin and he, and, he, and he purchases us as his own slaves. That's why Paul began this letter to Titus in verse 1 of chapter 1 by saying, Titus, you need to know I am a slave of God. He bought me. Now he tells us he redeemed the church. He buys the church. He redeemed us. Would you notice from every lawless Deed, the tense of the word redeemed points back to the act of Christ upon the cross with ongoing implication and power, but he redeemed us from every, circle that word every in your mind, every. The enemy wants to erase that word, every. Every? Already? At the cross? Yes, every. Lawless deed which means you can't do something tomorrow where Christ will say, oh, I didn't know about that one. I didn't think you'd do that or say that or think that. That changes everything. I'm going to have to kick you out of the family. Mm -mm. Every lawless thought, every act against his glory, every desire has been paid for on the cross in the past by our Savior's own death. That's our standing Now, as it relates to our ongoing experience, he adds another action by Christ here in this text. He's also purifying for himself a people for his own possession. He he redeemed you, ongoing implications. He is purifying you all the time. He's cleansing us. The blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses us And he's also, thirdly, making us zealous for every good deed. He wraps up that sentence by saying that. Verse 15, I believe, belongs with chapter 3. Are we really zealous people for God? The, The Puritans put it this way, that Christians are empowered with new affections. Are we really affectionate for our faith? Woodrow Crowell wrote in one of his books I have some time ago, he was preaching in Chicago. He preached for us a summer series ago. Caught a taxi to the airport. He said he engaged the cabbie in conversation, found out he was a Muslim. They passed a large building that had been converted into a mosque. He asked how many men attended there for prayer. He said, well, the 4 p.m. service has about 1,500 worshipers. The 4 a.m. service is not as well attended. It's like our 8 o'clock service on Sunday morning. 4 a.m. He said only about 900 come. 
Can you imagine 900 people belonging to the Lord getting up in the city of Raleigh and praying at 4 a.m.? He went on to write that almost all Christians or all Americans claim to be Christians. Americans believe in God, but they evidently don't believe in the assembly, at least not like Muslims attend their assembly. Kroll said this, and it startled me. He said, said it this way, if you took all the unchurched people in America, those not committed to a church family, if you took all the unchurched in America and if you took them and made them their own separate nation, they would be the 11th most populated nation on planet Earth. We have become the mission field. Are we zealous for any kind of deed that would bring glory to God? Are they hearing us say no to the wrong things? And are they watching and listening to us say yes to the right things? Do they hear us talk about or think about it? Have they ever heard a whisper from us that we believe Jesus is coming again? You tell the people at work that you believe Jesus is going to come and he could come today and if he, if he does, you're going to disappear. They're going to think you fell off the turnip truck. Are you willing to say that? Live like that? Warn them? Invite them? Maybe today. I was given an article from the Wall Street Journal, and I must hasten to close, but a physicist wrote in the commentary section what many are not coming to grips with as we now have data and we know that this universe is winding down. One day we know also from the book of Revelation that he is going to do away with the old and create a new universe, new heaven, new earth. This physicist wrote, the latest data from space satellites are unmistakable. The universe will eventually die. Galaxies are being pushed apart. Someday when looking up, we'll be quite lonely with other galaxies too far away to even be observed. Worse, it will be deathly cold. As the universe accelerates, temperatures will plunge throughout the universe. Billions of years from now, now he's guessing, of course, they throw billions around. Billions of years from now, that the stars will have exhausted their nuclear fuel. We do know that they are running out. The oceans will freeze. The sky will become dark, and the universe will consist of dead neutron stars, black holes, and nuclear debris. Is all intelligent life on earth doomed to die? Oh, that wasn't in there. I just nodded my head because that's what I wanted you to know. He says this, it seems as if the iron laws of physics have issued a death warrant. But there's still one possible exit strategy. Leave the universe. Do the laws of physics allow for the creation of wormholes connecting our universe to a younger, more hospitable, hospitable universe? In 2021, a new space probe, LISA, Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, will be launched, which may be able to prove or disprove this conjecture. Can a gateway be built to connect our universe with another? For intelligent life, there is no choice. Listen to him. Either we leave for another universe or we die in this old one. Can a gateway be built to travel from our universe to another? 
Yes. That's the plan. We're looking for this blessed hope, which in the Greek mind was assurance, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, who happens to be Jesus Christ, someday, one day, maybe this day, he will come for his church. In the meantime, I'm giving you grace, God says. She's going to come along and she's going to tutor you every day when, when teachable moments arise. And, and you're going to learn how to say no. You're going to learn how to say yes. And you're going to learn how to say and live with a perspective maybe today. Makes me happy too. <laughs> Would you stand with me? And let's practice before we close. Let's practice saying, on the count of three, say no. One, two, three. No. Say it louder. No. Say it like you mean it. No. Say yes. Yes. Again. Yes. Say it like you mean that. Yes. Say maybe today. Say it like you believe it. One more time. Maybe today. Let me pray. All right. Father, thank you for your spirit and the truth of your son. We thank you for giving us this persistent tutor who teaches us how to say these things as we grow up. Would you teach us how to leave our old life, how to live in our new life, and how to look forward to our future life? When our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, either by the rapture or by death, we will see him on that day. In his name we pray. Amen.